0: This is the Acting Up Podcast with your host, Allie Goodman. Hey, friends, welcome back to my ketamine journey. We have, uh, we've been through three now and uh, (laughs) every time I think I'm like gaining ground and learning you know like I'm I'm, oh okay yeah I've learned that lesson nope nope haven't quite mastered anything and as a matter of fact it's just opening more doors and I'm having more questions but it's probably a good thing because it's making sure that I'm having access to those questions that apparently I've been sort of burying for a very long time so I'm choosing to look at this in a very positive way, even though sometimes it feels not so positive because my perfectionist self wants to be seven steps ahead than where I actually am, and that's hard. So let me start a little bit with the... the, what happened at this last session, just just sort of like the housekeeping pieces of it. So my dose was raised to 70, and um, it was given in one shot. We were actually – it was bizarre because usually I'm in a I, – I, so far I've been in the same room, and this time we went into a different treatment room. And the funny enough, the reason is because uh, on my second – in my second journey, they – had sort of upgraded their, their, their technology. And so I I was using I had a, a pulse ox. And then I also had like a finger cuff, and a arm cuff, the second time around that calibrated to an app on the iPad, that that the nurse practitioner had. But the problem is that as of right at that moment, as as of right now, they don't have a boost signal that's far enough, and they didn't realize that. So she kept having to sort of come and stand close to me to uh, get the signal to show up a couple of times during that second session, which I didn't know, obviously, while I was under, but found out later, and we were kind of laughing about it. And she said, this is just easier because it's much closer to where she is, so she doesn't have to keep coming in and reconnecting to the devices, which I thought was pretty funny. So she said, like, yeah, we're going to get a boost extender, and when that happens, it'll be easier, and then this will work anywhere in the clinic. But I thought that was pretty funny. So uh, that was just a little different, being in a different room, but that's fine. They're all relatively the same and yeah I I got in and took my Zofran and um, settled in and, and the therapist and I talked for a few minutes and sort of got settled and I explained to her that coming out of the last one I was really frustrated and, and feeling that disappointment but that it actually shifted and you know that stopped feeling the same way but what started to happen was that I have these expectations about how I'm supposed to feel because I had such a good reaction after the first dose and that Wednesday after that first Tuesday and I thought oh if this is what's going to be like this is amazing and then you know Friday I felt good but I, you know I didn't have I didn't feel as good as Wednesday but that's fine and then I knew I had a bunch of days in between and I wanted to see how I was doing and I did find myself falling back into some depression, some some of the heaviness again. And I got really frustrated thinking like, well, hey, is it not working? Am I doing something wrong? Should I be, you know, doing something different? I thought this was supposed to be helping. And then I realized like, I'm only two treatments in and I'm expecting to be seven steps ahead and I'm not. And I need to give myself that grace and I need to think about it. And I had to kind of manage my expectations. It's like my brain knows that that's ridiculous, but somewhere deep inside me, my trauma-induced subconscious, I don't know that. And I have this expectation that it's a magic bullet and it should work, even though I know that's ridiculous. I'm really cognizant of the fact that that's ridiculous, but somewhere deep down I still feel that, and I'm frustrated when it's not working and fixed. Fixed gosh that word. I've been dealing with a lot of that feeling of being broken and trying to find you know how to put the pieces back together and not realizing that basically my whole life has been about surviving and staying together. Um, Yeah maybe the pieces are shifting a little but that doesn't mean that I was not you know I I figured out how to survive. I didn't figure out how to thrive (laughs) which is what I'm trying to do now. So one of the things that uh, came up for me I have a few friends that have been recently in different states of sickness, disease, whatever. One that recently was in, in the hospital for brain surgery. I have another one that went in because he had a stroke. And then I have another friend who is in a really dark part of cancer that's just ravaging through his body. And all of these people, are not they're in different stages of of recovery or treatment or whatever and I was thinking about my friend who had the stroke and he had posted that he had gone into rehab like a physical rehab facility because the stroke had left him unable to like walk and use his arms and he's a painter so that was not the best uh, so he kept posting things that he was doing in rehab which was actually really nice to see and in that it it occurred to me that how frustrating that must be for him to be someone who could walk a week ago and now he can't and it's not like he forgot how it's like his body has to be retrained how to do it his brain has to be reminded how to do it and that's just so interesting to me and and so he's in rehab and he's retraining or teaching his body how to do something that it used to know how to do but it doesn't know how to do anymore and I've been thinking about the experience of rehab. I've never been to any kind of a rehab center for physical or substance abuse or anything like that. So I don't, I don't really know how they, how they operate other than, you know, what we've seen on TV, which, you know, Dr. Drew doesn't really give you the best outlook on those things sometimes. But uh, I, I, I was thinking about that idea of the grace that you have to give yourself in a situation like that. It's like you're relearning how to be in the world. You're relearning how to make your body move right or move in the world and survive and thrive and all of that. And I thought, I need to remind myself that that's where I'm at right now, that I'm literally in rehab. I'm in recovery. And that doesn't mean that I'm broken. It just means that I'm retraining my brain and my body how to work in this world and I have to keep reminding myself of that because I feel like I should be already better and that's not fair and it's not fair to the process and it's not fair to me and it's not fair to the parts of me that have been surviving for this long because that's all I've been doing to myself is putting that pressure on myself and then falling short and disappointing myself and it's so funny because if you're friends with me and you've had you know issues or, or struggles or whatever you know that I'm probably one of the least judgmental of you and your struggle. I'm I'm really, I give grace, I I, I, I tell you to give yourself grace, and I give you reasons why you can, and I never apply it to myself. And it's because, I don't know, maybe the arrogance, maybe the, I was able to handle all this stuff, so I should be faster at this, or the fact that I know I have this idea that because I I cognizantly know what I should be doing or feeling or acting or how I should be means that I because I have the knowledge I should be faster at it or better at it or quicker at it or just because I acknowledged it means I should be done with it. And I'm not. And that's frustrating. When you're in the arts and when you're in a in a business where you can lose the opportunity to have a job or, you know, book a job or book a role or whatever, because you are not quick as quick on your feet as the next person you teach yourself really fast how to become quick on your feet and adapt and adjust and take direction real quick and I think I'm judging myself for not being able to take the direction that I understand and apply it really fast to myself that's hard to to come to terms with and that's kind of what's been going on with me lately so as i was sitting there before i got the injection i said to her you know i think my best way of handling this today is i really need to remind myself and keep reminding myself that i'm in rehab i know it sounds dorky but that feels like the right terminology for me right now and so that's that's what i did i and when i was going under uh, she came in on the on the microphone and she said just you know relax and just take this journey for what it is and enjoy it and you know, enjoy it, you know, whatever that means. And then she said, you know, remember you're in rehab and it's okay, whatever comes up, comes up and just let it be. So we went, you know, went through it and uh, we did 70. And um, it was very weird because a couple of things happened during that session that I hadn't – that that were different. So here's what happened. I I did – all the same things were there. Like I noticed – my breathing, I could know, I could tell when I was moving my head from side to side. I was doing some movement in there, scanning, but I don't remember much and I'm okay with that because it didn't feel unpleasant to not remember and I thought maybe that was my brain letting go of having to grab onto these things as like, well, I remember this and this must be meaningful because I remember it rather than just being in the journey and whatever does come up, comes up. I honestly I remember colors. I remember light blue and I remember yellows. And that's really what I remember. I remember feeling very calm and happy afterwards. Like happy is not the right word. Like pleasant <laughs> So dorky. Uh yeah, pleasant's about the best way that I could put it. Like it just didn't like life felt good. Like it felt okay, even though I was dizzy and even though I was, you know, out of it and all this stuff other things that happened i felt my heart racing at one point and then as i was coming out and i noticed i was coming out i i asked if it was shorter this time if my if my journey had been a much shorter journey that time was really stressing me out that i felt like i had stopped early and She didn't confirm or deny it. She just said, you know, why is time such a big deal to you right now? I said, I don't know. It just feels like this was shorter. And it and I either my brain cut me short or somehow I I tried to get out of something. And I'm not sure if that was out of safety or out of whatever the reason is. Later on, uh, I came to the conclusion that the reason might be because if you've ever uh, gotten drunk with me, I get drunk really fast but I sober up really fast. So I wonder if maybe my body just does the same thing with the stuff. Is it just like goes through my system much faster? I don't know. Um, and maybe it's just a coincidence. Uh, but the other thing I recognized was the music. And I mean recognized. So music is very powerful for me. I've I've talked about this before. I have, I have a really strong relative pitch. Jackson gets that from me. And I heard the music and it felt the same like it not that i could tell you exactly where it was going in the music but like somewhere in my brain it knew and i i could tell when i was waking up early that the music was at the was at a different spot and an earlier spot and we hadn't gotten to some of the songs i I guess because i kept asking hey did you use the same playlist this time because the music felt familiar and she said I didn't use the same playlist as the first time, but I did use it as the same one as the second time. And I said, yeah, I think my brain knew. And I said, maybe we shouldn't do that next time because I think my brain knew. And it was you, it was, it was excited to latch onto something it understood. And maybe that's why it ended short. And she agreed with me. She said that I didn't even think about that. She's like, we're going to, we're going to do a different playlist next time I said great so uh and I made a joke I was like you might want to put that in your you know (laughs) in your um questionnaire do you you know respond very strongly to music (laughs) and if you do, can you fall? I don't know I was it was more joking with her but because you don't want that right you don't want to cut anything short or have anything be a crutch for your brain because your brain will is trying to keep you safe and will do what it can to do that yeah that was interesting so as I was coming out, I could feel movement. I could feel myself moving my lips. I was sort of uh, doing that same, rubbing my my bottom lip with my teeth. And I could feel myself doing that. I could feel myself moving my head back and forth. I could feel my left arm, which did not have the uh, finger cuff and the wrist calibrated blood pressure and all that information on there, was moving in this very, like, slow, very – almost like dance like way I'm not a dancer but that's sort of what it felt like and two things came to mind which we talked about later uh one of them was I was thinking about I was thinking about Jordan my two-year-old and I was uh I was brushing like with my hand I was brushing his hair and like just sort of feeling him his head shape and then I touched his cheek which is something I do. Like, that's how I, that's like an affectionate thing I do with him is I'll put, run my, he has long hair, and I run my hands through his hair, and then I'll like touch his cheek. Um, and he was looking at me with these, his big, beautiful blue eyes and his old crinkly smile. And it was, it was the moment that I closed the door because they drove me down yesterday. So, or, yeah. So I was, I closed the door in the car and that was the last he was the closest to me, so he was the one I was last touching. And then it morphed and I was I was with Jackson and I had and Jackson, I I don't know, I, I do different things with both of them. With Jackson I usually cup his his face in both of my hands. Uh, it just it's just what I've always done with him. And so it's just interesting like how you adapt to your kids in different ways. Anyway, so that that was lovely because I was you know thinking about him as I was coming out but the other thing that happened with my arm that was so bizarre I started moving it around in this sort of methodical way and I had a memory this was coming out this wasn't while I was in like really in the journey but I had this memory of my first real boyfriend when I went went away to high school and uh, I was a freshman he was a senior and he He put me under and he hypnotized me and I'd I'd never been hypnotized before. So it was such an interesting, odd experience. And one of the things he had said was, and your arm lifts on its own and it moves around. And I remember him saying it and I remember feeling my arm do that, but like not forcing it or making it happen. It was just doing it on its own. And I remember being so weirded out by the fact that he could just sort of tell my body what to do and it would do it. That was so wild to me. That that was an interesting sort of memory, you know. Again, I remember it happening because again, never been hypnotized before that. So, and I don't think I've been hypnotized since then. So that was just as just a realization that there's the, so much capacity in our brains and what it can do. I coming out also had a thoughts of my friend who a few years ago uh, took her own life. Her name was Katrina, and she. We were We were friends from afar. We had never we'd only met in person once, uh, and that was when we were at a, a corporate event together. And everything else was done you know via Zoom or you know, whatever. And she she and I had things in common, not just the business that we were both doing at the time, but the just the way we approached life. And uh, she had a nine-year-old little girl, and um, she had an older son who had just gotten accepted into college who was on the autism spectrum. And there were just a lot of things. She was married once, that's how she had her son, and then she got married again. And the guy that she was with now was like the one she was supposed to be with, she always said, and that's the one where they had the, their daughter. And she was diagnosed with breast cancer and kidney cancer, and so they removed her kidney. And they removed the mass, and she had she had a double I think she had a double mastectomy, and then she ended up starting this charity that was I think it's called Art for Scars, which was basically getting inked where where your scars were as a way of you know taking back control of your body, and um, I was so proud of her for that work that she did, and she was getting better, things were going really well. I thought she told everybody they were going well. She was an activist on, on, you know, social media and friends that she met through, you know, all of that. And, and then one day there was a post that she was gone, and I thought, did, did her cancer come back? Like, what happened? We, nobody could figure it out, and then finally her husband uh, told us that she had, she basically had sent him an email while he was at work that said, by the time you get this, I'll be gone. And it was shocking and heartbreaking. And he said he'd, he never knew just how depressed she was, that she was really good at hiding it, and nobody knew. And he, he, he suspects that maybe she was even hiding it from herself to some degree. And her death really hit me hard because there was a lot of stress and tragedy in their world. So, like I said, this was a second marriage. It was actually a second marriage for both of them. And he was married to a woman who – and they had two daughters. And recently, like within the last maybe six months of her uh, taking her own life, their mother died in a tragic accident. And the two girls were coming to live with them because they were coming to be with their father. And she – I remember when she took them in, she was so, you know – just uh, you know I'm I'm so sad that she's gone she was a good person and it's you know we parented co-parented so well and I'm so sad for them and I'm so sad for you know for I mean she just had she had a really big heart and a really you know all these things and I thought my gosh like she took so much on and nobody knew how much pain she was actually in and it I think it really broke me for a while because I didn't know how to process that she literally left this world and left behind all these people who she knew relied on her but at the same time she also had had come to terms with the fact that if her cancer came back or if it got worse she would have to leave them and I wonder if part of it was that she just wanted to leave on her own terms she didn't want to she did not want to be surprised by death she wanted to take that control again I don't know but uh it 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 messed me up for a while and every time something comes up on my memories on Facebook of you know a picture of us together or a moment where she's posted on my wall saying you know hey I had a great you know meeting with Allie today and got to you know chat about x y or z it it gut punches me and it's not like i saw her posts anytime recently but she's clearly living in my brain and i suspect that she's the reason that I really have been taking a look at my own depression and really questioning my, my place in, in what I want and, and trying to, I guess, save myself. While I don't think I'm necessarily—I don't think I was necessarily at the point of taking my own life— I definitely could feel what that relief that would be. So it's been it's been sitting in me a while, and I think I I hadn't really dealt with that enough at all. I think also because it was such a surprise. It's always a surprise, you know. So today when we did our integration, um, I was on Zoom with the therapist, and we were talking and you know, I I told her all of the things that I've already sort of recreated with you, but I, you know, I said that I, I'm feeling a lot of anger and that I had thought that I was going to be able to work through the anger because, you know, I know anger is a second emotion. We talked about that. And, you know, anger is usually a combination of hurt and fear or some combination of that or something. And I was like, you know, I, I know that, and I know that, that there's, pain under the anger or hurt or something but I'm angry and I'm I think I'm never I don't really allow myself to feel that way because I have a split second reaction that tells me that certain emotions are not okay that they disappoint and that I'm a disappointment and that I've have disappointed my family and my potential and I could have been this But instead, I'm this. And I know that if you talk to my family, they would say that's crazy. But the messages were very loud and clear to me and have been loud and clear to me for a long time. Having had such intense trauma as a kid put me in a place where I don't necessarily, I didn't know who I was. Uh, I didn't know what I liked. I didn't know what I disliked. I I I basically worked to adapt who I was to what made everybody else around me the happiest. And the only little piece that I kept for myself was the art, the artistic side, the 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 actor, musician, writing songs, all of that side. Everything else I adapted. So. My mom, for example, is an extrovert and she has lots of friends and I thought that was the only way to be uh, and my mom is somebody who re- responds to every single message and she sends birthday cards every- all the time. And- I was killing myself to be the same kind of person, and I realized I'm not. I'm not an extrovert. I'm an introvert. I'm not somebody who keeps up with all of those things. I mean, thank God for Facebook because if it's somebody really important, I can always just no happy birthday thanks to Facebook because I certainly can't remember everybody's birthday, and I don't really have the bandwidth for that. It's not in me, and I feel shame for that. I want to be the kind of person who can do that, and I I don't. There are certain things that, you know, my mom really enjoys and likes and I don't like them and I don't want to do them and I just I grew up with this idea that I my mom always said you know everybody who said you look just like your mom and there was always this sort of implication that I should be just like her and I'm not and that was hard and I, I don't don't know if I was rebelling because I really wasn't like her or if I was rebelling because I was screaming for my own identity, and I don't know, I don't know which one is which, because there's so much picking and choosing and adapting that goes on um, with with childhood trauma. But one of the things that I remember, and this was one of the things we discussed, the one of the biggest traumas that I had was when I was a child. I was sexually abused by our housekeeper's boyfriend, and our housekeeper was like a live-in housekeeper, stayed with us. She'd been there since I was about a year old, maybe about a, like a year and a half old. She started dating this guy, you know, a couple of years into that. And he would come over and he would spend the night, especially when my parents would go out of town. So my parents would go on these like trips to Europe or, you know, off with their friends to New York or something. And and, and they, I think, felt safer having him there. It's like, oh, there's another person. There's another adult around. And they were OK with that. Well, when he was there, he was taking advantage of the fact that he was there and This started for the first time when I was like five, I think, um, because we had just moved into our new house and it was in that basement. So yeah, it was five and pretty much carried on until I was about nine when I finally told the secret to a friend of mine who bravely told her mom and then her mom called my mom and it was, you know, a whole thing. They would, you know, they they would leave us with him a lot and us as me and my brother with them a lot. And I, you know, you don't know what to do when you're five, six years old, you know, you just sort of you follow what your parents say to do. Well, one of the things that I had started to do is really very young as I became bilingual. So I was speaking Spanish and English uh, as a, you know, super young person, like I was, I was growing up with both languages. And my housekeeper would speak to me in both English and Spanish. But her boyfriend only spoke to me in Spanish because he didn't really know English. Uh, And at some point, it it was before this all came out, I might have been around eight, I told our housekeeper to stop talking to me in Spanish, that I didn't want to talk in Spanish anymore. Nobody questioned why, but I was told I was selfish and I was told that I, I had this, there was this moment of like, they were disappointed in me because I had had this gift where I was bilingual and then I didn't want to be bilingual anymore. And I was throwing away this opportunity, throwing away my potential. And nobody stopped to question, like, why all of a sudden would this person not want to do this? Like, what's going on? Whereas with me, what was going on was I, it was, it was, that, that's what that meant to me at the time was speaking to me in Spanish meant this was what happens to you and I, I didn't want to I just couldn't I couldn't in my you know six seven eight year old brain understand you know and I couldn't parse between it and the minute that I said it, I didn't want her to talk to me in Spanish she stopped talking to me in Spanish and my parents were super disappointed in me. And every once in a while, they would bring up, you know, Allie used to be bilingual, but, you know, and then she told, she told her to stop talking to her in Spanish, so they stopped. And so I felt a lot of shame and guilt about that. Um, and again, nobody knew, so, like, it's not like they were doing that to be cruel. It's just they didn't know. And nobody sort of dug deep enough to find out. And even afterwards, nobody dug deep enough to find out. Even after everybody found out, nobody... Question that and never came up again. So that was a realization that there's a lot of myself that I feel because uh, the therapist had asked me to sort of name that feeling that I was having, and I said it feels like disappointed potential. And there's a lot of areas where that comes up in my life, um, choosing to be an actor versus going to med school, for example, or even choosing to be an actor instead of taking over my dad's part of the business in the financial world which I had no desire to do whatsoever but yet I went and tried to take the series seven and learn how to I mean I was crazy like what just to make them happy and it was going to make me miserable and I knew that but I couldn't I couldn't I had to take care of them and I had to not disappoint them because my whole life had been about taking care of everybody else, about making sure everybody else was comfortable, making sure that everybody was okay. So much so that I denied how I felt. And this has been my sort of get-go, go-to survival. It's how I got through, right? So one of the things that the therapist told me that (laughs) is my homework, if you will, which is actually smart, is I have to say out loud, if I can, if it's a safe place to do so, if I'm feeling something, if I'm feeling a, a, an emotion, to acknowledge it, to validate it. Because what happens is I try to shove it away uh, and don't validate it. So if I validate it, then maybe I can sit in it and deal with it rather than shove it off and then you know stuff it down. And so I, I made a conscious choice to do that. And so a few times during the, the session today I said, you know, I'm, I'm, I feel angry or I feel sad. And, you know, we sat with that emotion and I cried a little bit and I said, you know, the, people have talked about crying and it's like healing and I've never felt that before. Crying never felt healing to me. Crying felt like wading through clay and it never felt cleansing. And this was the first time that I felt like I cried and I felt – better a little lighter and I didn't feel bad about it or shame ashamed for crying it was it was an odd experience because I never understood that when people talked about it to me it was just this big like blob in your throat that just lives there you're shoving down and trying to swallow and it just yeah the other big thing I came to recognize which um I have a lot of feelings about uh, Jackson, my oldest, um, who is autistic. And when I say a lot of feelings, I mean a lot of feelings about my role in his life, about how I can support him and be the best mom that I can be to him. Uh, It's a really odd place trying to be an adult to somebody who you can't always understand what their motivations are, or where they're coming from, especially because they can't tell you. Uh, Jackson's verbal, but only we call it moderately ver- verbal because he he's not conversational, but he can express his needs and wants. So if he wants something to eat or he wants to get up or he wants to go somewhere, he can tell us those things. Or if he's to go to the bathroom, he can tell us those things. But if I were to say, you know, tell me about your day, he would look at me like blankly, there's no, there's no expanding upon it. Uh, if I say, how are you? he will say, good. And that's the extent of it. Even if he's not good, even if he's really upset, I'll say, good. So there's a lot of uh, it's difficult in communication. And a lot of it is interpreting things or learning these things are how he responds. But I would read recently, uh, uh, I read a lot about um, neurodivergence brain, uh, people with different uh, ways that their brains work clearly because I have a child that is autistic and also there's a lot of ADHD that runs through our family and on my side and on John's side and so we were talking through some of that and uh, one of the threads that I found on on Twitter was explaining that some neurodivergent brains can't process or visualize what being done means so the example they give is if, if I say to you we're, you know, a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, you're going to go make one. Usually, most people, this isn't everybody, but most people can visualize what a done peanut butter and jelly sandwich looks like. However, there are some people with neurodivergence that they can't picture done. They can, if, if they can picture what done looks like, then they can reverse engineer how to get there. Then there are people who can picture what done looks like, but they can't Figure out the steps, or they can figure out the steps, but they don't know which one they need to do first. So they know that they need to get bread and jelly and peanut butter out and put it on a plate and have a, have a knife. But do they get the knife out first? Do they put the bread out first? Do they open the jelly jar first? Like all of those things become all the same priority and are just as confusing. So there's all these different ways down the line of neurodivergence, and 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 where the where the the gap hits or where the you know where the the brain doesn't connect and, and 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 not in a bad way just the way the brain is built and and it just doesn't it doesn't make those leaps um, and then there are people who just can't visualize what done looks like they can't visualize what the peanut butter and jelly sandwich finished looks like so the person who was writing about this explained that she her son is one of those that couldn't picture what done looked like he couldn't picture she would say get ready for school and he didn't understand what that was supposed to look like so she took a picture of him with a bag You know his backpack and his, you know lunch in hand and all that stuff. And she said, "Go match the picture, and then he could go back and do it." And that was so cool to me because I thought, "Wow, you know, if we can figure out how to like unlock those moments in a lot of different people, we could probably, we could probably do a lot of good, you know." But we don't all know where those gaps are, and we all are on some version of this spectrum of of our brains where they lock in. Where I mean, it's what makes us unique, right? So. I realized that what's going on with me is I can picture done. I can picture healthy. I can picture feeling good. But my, am I, and I have the desire to get there, but I have never been able to figure out the steps to get there. And that just made me more desperate. And I'm hopeful that as I go through this process, And as I rewire my brain a little bit and sort of heal some of those patches, that maybe it will offer a new pathway for me to get to done. And done is never really done, let's be honest. I mean, we're never fully healed and we're never fully okay. But I'd like thriving versus surviving to be at the forefront. That would be nice so yeah I go in tomorrow for the next session session number four I you may you will likely not get this (laughs) this published until I've already been through that but I wanted to make sure I recorded this so that they didn't get muddied up and mixed up but it's also important to note that one of the things that the therapist and I discussed was the dosing that she had also discussed with the uh, nurse practitioner they they confirmed that I did have a shorter, uh, a shorter journey last time and they don't want that for me because they think that something was doing that, the stopping of it. And so they came up with an idea that instead of one big dose, they were going to do two smaller doses to equal the bigger dose. And that coming in and doing a second dose in the middle might actually cause the journey to be longer because it would keep me under longer. Um, I wonder if maybe that's why some people have a better experience under infusions versus the injection is that uh, – because it's sort of this ongoing drip. So you don't really fall out of it like I can or some people can. Or maybe they just have never experienced somebody like me. (laughs) Who knows? Ah, unique. So I think um, I'm looking forward to that. I'm going to see – we're going to see how that goes tomorrow and I'll update you on number four. Over the weekend you'll probably get back some sort of back to back episodes in some capacity. So thanks again, my friends, for listening and for being here and supporting. It's it's been such a breath of fresh air going through this yet knowing you all are are hearing me and are on my side and have have my back as I have yours. So I'm gonna I'm gonna say out loud how I'm feeling. I'm feeling feeling calm. I'm feeling I'm feeling a little anxious, but mostly okay. Uh curious, which is kind of where I want to be. So, yeah. Okay, friends. Just remember to take it one day at a time, one minute at a time, sometimes one second at a time. And just hang in there. Solidarity, my friends. I love you all.